Well, we discovered this was like a crazy moment in medicine. Like, hold on, our antibiotics don't work, but you could take someone else's poop and put it into that person with a rip-roaring, life-threatening infection. And in the next 48 hours, they will be better. That was completely insane. All right. And we were all very skeptical, like, because, you know, honestly, if you went back 10 years ago, poop was the least valuable, least respected thing that I believe exists on the planet. It doesn't get worse than that. (laughs) And um, it's so fascinating because we're, we just, I think it was the stigma of it. Like, how could you possibly put someone else's poop into another person? But really what you're doing there is you're quite simply restoring a balanced microbiome. And when you restore a balanced microbiome, that infection that does not respond to antibiotics. Good morning, good evening, good day to you. And welcome to the Happy Bear Podcast. We're delighted to have you. I'm David. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. Sorry. And there's four magpies just collecting it. Oh, I'm just having a meeting out the window there. They look really cool. I think so they were just really watching fun. our podcast. What They're do really four excited. magpies stand for? Joy, happiness, and overwhelming. Elation. Yeah. Yeah. No, a boy. Well, that's a boy. in Celtic mythology. But then I saw a magpie, and we're going way off topic. <laughs> this morning, the other morning, I walked in, and there was a magpie like staring at me, and then jumped up on a, on a on a branch, and then it just kept looking at me. I was like, "Oh my god, this magpie is trying to tell me something." So I started researching and seeing what do magpies <laughs> mean. And according to lots of mythology, they mean confidence, they mean joy, and they mean communication. Like, because magpies are lots of singers. But then in Celtic mythology, like one magpie means. One for, for sorrow, sorrow, two, two for, for joy, three, three for a girl, girl four, four for a boy, boy. Yeah, we all know that. five for a wedding. But I wanted, I wanted a, a different one because it was one magpie, and I didn't want like sorrow. I wanted. Also, to, of course, you didn't. What does that mean if you get for a boy? Because I, I still salute. I can't help it. I still salute. Do you still wave at your left hand. What wave at my left hand? That's what we yeah. used to do. Wave at your left hand when you see a magpie. And the same way when you like, pass a graveyard, do you bless yourself? No, but I salute oh when God, I see a magpie. Oh my God, we're so. What do you call that word? Superstitious. Yeah. Do you avoid walking under ladders? No. no, no. I actually quite enjoy it. Do you? Ooh, rebel. you rebel. But also, do you walk over manholes? Uh, they're, yeah, uh, they're not called manholes. They're now actually called um, access points. Human holes. Sorry. Human holes. Yeah. I knew you. Sorry. I was surprised. Where was the last? You, you love toilet humor. <laughs> <laughs> you had to say it Big a few deep. times. <laughs> okay, one thing. Uh, I, I know we've gone off already straight down the bins, uh, but. During this podcast, you've clicked on it because you're obviously interested in good health and Will is phenomenal. And many people listening will kind of realize that one of the keys to improving your immune system, improving your overall health and every aspect of your health is to increase your fiber content and focus diversity. Many people know to do this, but they struggle to actually apply it. Yeah, we've got a Good Health Revolution course, which we've ran for the last five years. It's all about getting you to eat more plants it's four weeks and you get loads of support. You're, you're not a good it. doctor. What's the no, story? No, we, we do it with Dr. Alan Desmond, consultant gastroenterologist. So, yeah. Yeah. Link down below. Do check it out. It's brilliant. And you guys have great bowel movements, so you can attest for it. Uh, yeah, know, definitely course. do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that I, we didn't get into the actual bowel movement, the amount and the quantity and the frequency, which, you know. But we I'm, have I'm, before. I am, we yeah. have before. Like what a, is it? The Bristol stool chart or everything? Well, I yeah, think it's something that the average reflection. person does about 500 grams of excrement a day whereas I think it was like far super. less no no it was like 100 grams oh was it okay oh I can't remember I thought it was more like a kilo you know those like no you're more like the kilo super yeah. performers of fiber fuel people are like kilos a day the shape and consistency right well you want to not listen maybe we shouldn't be talking about this we might be making people feel uncomfortable <laughs> no more poo talk shh where were you guys earlier today before you came here oh on we're the on farm. the farm 
Oh, the joy it brought. It's, and it's amazing. Like every time I go, we're just quickly stopping by the farm because we got things to do and like we don't have much time and quick, 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 quick. And then you get to the farm and it's just out in nature. And there's just this feeling of like space and infinite time. Suddenly you go from being time being linear to time being deep. And it's like suddenly we're going to pocket ourselves in this two minute gap and it's going to be a year. I know that sounds weird yeah. but uh, but we called by the farm and so we started a farm maybe eight weeks ago it's our first it's a four acre only eight weeks no it's more than that I think it's about it could ten be ten term. but it's not long anyway yeah. it's a four acre but we've been hatching ideas for it for about ten years yeah we, I'd say it's been more than that it's a four acre organic regenerative farm where we use no dig principles yeah so we're totally learning about and it what's and, no dig principles uh, so listen to the Charles Dowding episode and you'll learn listen all to the whole hour episode and you'll learn <laughs> but we've an amazing um, head farmer Chris and he's just wonderful and uh, and today we did our first harvest we harvested some courgettes and some chard and what was, was that interesting I felt like a kid in a sweet shop mm. yeah. what was that interesting fact of course you would the happy pear sweet yeah. courgette sweet <laughs> anyway what was that interesting fact about uh, courgette that you were saying? Many people don't really like, and I didn't even know, and we've had a vegetable shop for 18 years, that there's a male and female flower in a courgette. And the male one doesn't have the big phallic-like courgette. It's just the flower because th- it pollinates the female and the female has the courgette. So looking at it, I was like, that's obvious the male with the big wiener sticking out. But that was actually the female. So yeah, I was totally wrong. Yeah. Oh. Well, in other species, isn't it, when like, the female and male have sex. The female sometimes eats the male afterwards. So spiders. Like, oh, it's spiders, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's weird. I'm glad I'm not eating. Right. <laughs> be careful, you say, might yeah, be. It's the same way. You only get bees, one go. But it's the same way. It's be bees, crap. bees, they don't really know this, the, the function of the male beyond impregnating the female. And after that, they kind of hang out and they're kind of like fighting to get another go. And that's really... Well, it's not much different to you guys are, to be honest. No. <laughs> no. Oh. But you, well, you'll probably go to the, back to the farm after this now, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, like, we're going to collect the, the harvest. The harvest. There's chard and courgette. And also tomorrow morning, tomorrow to we have our um, Middle Eastern Supper Club on, on Friday night. There will be more coming soon. But um, Deedam and me are coming up. Deedam's um, one of our wonderful chefs. And she's coming up to me tomorrow. And we're going to pick courgette flowers to bring them back to stuff. You're going to go frolic club. through the med- meadows as the dew rises and the early morning sun and the birds are chirping and you're a frolic through the meadows and pick some courgette flowers to bring them back lovely. stuff. It does sound nice. Does. Yeah. It does. I think I'm going to write a, go home and write a poem about it. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Dave. <laughs> no, okay. um, but quick one. Uh, sorry, just personal information or um, interest. Are, are courgette flowers like as good for you as a uh, courgette? Wouldn't I'd say so. more diverse. Again, like you're widening your diversity of food group. Like one, you're bringing obviously a color so it's really high in yeah, antioxidants yeah because they're normally like yellow or orange aren't they? really vibrant the challenge is that more often than not they're deep fried yeah but and in this case in, in this case what way we've been doing them is we're using them in place of vine leaves so we're stuffing our dalaman which is often our dalaman which is a stuffed vine leaf which is a grape leaf um, and instead of that we're stuffing the courgette flour and actually boiling it ooh, ooh. ooh. okay delicious. can I talk about Dr. B okay Dr. B also known as Will Bolsowitz he's a dude Bolsowitz you should have tried speaking Polish with him um, but if you're new to Dr. B he's a board certified award winning gastroenterologist and New York Times bestselling author of Fiber Fueled he's now got a recent book called Fiber Fueled Cookbook he really knows his stuff he really does like we can talk through all his achievements but ultimately he's a wonderful man that has the ability to take medical information and apply it in a practical lifestyle matter, matter and to talk about extremely complex topics and to make them in bite size accessible um, microbiome nuggets yeah well I really thought is. it was very interesting and I won't give it away but the whole um, 
about intolerances, food intolerances versus, versus allergies. allergies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes he, into he, detail about that, which is really he's a legend. He really yeah. is. He's class. You're gonna love this. We absolutely adored it. We were on the. We were like two little kids before. Um, and we Christmas went to Bidisa Theric, <laughs> which was quite full. Oh, quite cool. Quite cool. Full, quite cool. Um, yeah, if you enjoyed this, please share it and we'll reshare it uh, on Instagram because uh, we want to get the word out there about getting people to eat more plants and the importance of our good health. So thank you and enjoy the show. Cheers. Lovely to chat to you. Finally, we, Al's been, uh, Dr. Al's been talking about you for years, saying you're brilliant. Where, where are you based? I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. So uh, down the East Coast, almost to Florida. Coastal yeah. city, historic city, you know. Beautiful. Historic for us is like 1600s. So yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, Our Charleston's always beautiful. I always remember midnight guard, midnight in the garden. That was Savannah. Evil. Oh yeah, that was Savannah. I used to live in oh, Savannah. Savannah. Oh, yeah, was that was a crazy book. Yeah, I love. Yeah. I have such beautiful memories of it, like reading it in my imagination. Like every time I hear Charleston or Georgia or South Carolina, I think they're just so beautiful. We spent time in North yeah. Carolina many years ago. It's beautiful. Oh, did you? Good one. Remember Gazunt? Did you ever hear Gazunt? Did you ever watch that movie Gazunt? Patch, Patch Adams. Adams. Patch Adams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we spent. I spent about a month, even two months, on at his. Um, what would you call it? I don't know. Play Center for the Revolution. Yeah, Center for the Revolution. Let's call it. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. Anyway, cool dude. Good point. It is really cool. Uh, there was a guy I did med school back, like shortly after that movie came out. And um, 2002 to 2006, I was in med school. And there was a guy in my class who thought that he wanted to be Patch Adams. And <laughs> he, he turned into a pediatrician, but he would like go in and he would be like wearing, you know, the clown nose and stuff like that. And it was, it was kind of cool. We gave him a tough time about it, but honestly, it was really cool because he was just trying to make the kids happy, you know? Yeah. Well, the, healing the healing power of laughter. Of joy, laughter, and you know, like it, there's a lot to be said. Healing power of spirit, like it's like that spirit, the spirit of joy. I know we're starting a little bit esoteric here, but you know, often, often that can be discounted, can't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how I connect that to the microbiome. However, just a random throwaway comment. But what, there. what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I mean, well, I, I think I think there is a connection to the microbiome. So you know, first of all, let's let's uh, put it this way: when you're doing something that relieves stress. Stress actually causes harm, causes injury to the microbiome. And so, um, so we know that obviously, like when you're feeling joy, when you're feeling laughter, that is the antithesis of stress. So it's a beautiful thing. Like this is the reason why when people feel connected to other people, you know, you guys, you guys, your community is about connection. And feeling connected to other people allows us to feel like we belong to feel like we are supported, to know that there are people who have our back. And um, that is a beautiful and powerful thing because then when we feel that way, we actually are more at ease as humans. We are more authentic as humans. And that translates into our gut being at ease as well. And this is, you know, this is the reason why, you know, when people are stressed, like for example, if someone is scared of uh, public speaking and they're about to go and stand at a podium, they get diarrhea or they get cramps, they get abdominal discomfort, right? And so, you know, it really is, it's legit. The brain gut connection is real and how we feel and where we're at from an emotional perspective actually has massive implications for our digestive health, for our gut health. And that leads to other things throughout the entire body. I yeah. think it's so true. I think it's so true because like, can I, 
Can I go with one random one? Okay, go. Just while we're hanging out around the uh, oh, around like the fringes, hang hanging out really. in the woods a bit here. Um, okay, microbiome, microbiome. Like microbiome, obviously, is the collection of bacteria in our large intestine, and there's trillions of them. You know, I've heard you talk about 100 trillion bacteria approximately. In terms of the relationship between the microbiome, like humans and how we function on this planet, where like, and a microbiome exists in everything in mother nature, but it's almost like the microbiome, the microbiome, and then the soil and that they're all interconnected. And as our farming practices have changed from being kind of a diverse, somewhat wild diversity of plants throughout nature to suddenly monocropping to suddenly our diets have gone from being broadly rich in fiber and very diverse to suddenly becoming quite homogenous and you know, lacking diversity. I, I wonder if we could talk, or if you could talk about the relationship between the macrobiome and how we're existing as humans on this, the, the macrobiome of planet Earth and how that relates to and our macrobi- microbiome. Macrobiome being that 70% is live in urban environments now. And, you know, it's changed a lot over 50 years. Very big question we've gone with there now. Yeah. Have no, fun I mean, with I, that I, one. I, I think that the microbes, you know, so first of all, let's let's say this, that... Um, Everything that exists on this planet that is alive either has a microbiome or it is a part of the microbiome. And in some ways, we're all, it's all just a continuous thing because we're a part of the microbiome, right? Like we as humans are the microbiome for this bigger planet, which is Mother Earth. And I would actually make the argument that where we're at right now is like we as humanity are in a state of unbalance. Dysbiosis. The, the term is dysbiosis. Exactly. That's the term that we use in when we're talking about the microbiome. If we are the microbiome, we as humans are currently dysbiotic, but we can't separate these things. So, you know, you're talking about the soil, right? And you're talking about the food supply and then the health of humans. And the part that actually makes it all click and work from one step to the next step are the microbes. The microbes are there basically to to allow all of this, the transitions to take place seamlessly. They're part of all of it. So the soil, you know, basically is created by microbes. When we decompose our food, when we when we basically are creating new um, uh, healthy soil through composting, that's not a sterile process. Those are microbes. Microbes are responsible for actually allowing that to take place. We create the healthy soil. And then you drop a little seed in there, right? And that seed has a microbiome. And the soil has a microbiome. They interact together. The seed comes to life. It germinates um, through sprouting, which I know that you guys are a fan of, and I, I am too. And so that's, that seed, that sprout, it, it, it comes to life, and it reaches up towards the sky to collect the rays of the sun. And it starts to grow and mature. And covering that little baby sprout, its entirety is covered in, I'm sure, at least millions, if not billions of microbes, okay? And as it matures and grows, like it creates a fruit, right? That fruit could be a pear. Um, not to be cheesy, but <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Good little cheese, cheese ball drop there. Huh? <laughs> I mean, I could have gone with an apple. I was like, but I it don't want to. It was nice. I like it. I like it. I don't want to insult the happy pair guys by pull, picking an apple. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that fruit, um, that fruit has a microbiome. And we've actually seen this in studies. There's actually clinical research that shows that, for example, with apples specifically, 
the apple has about 100 million microbes and it has as much diversity in terms of species as we do as humans and a, a quick little fascinating point on that most people would think that the microbes are concentrated on the skin they're not actually the microbes are concentrated in the core which is the part that we throw in the trash wow wow Jeez. So, so realistically we should be eating the core of the fruit i think we should sucking the stones well, I, yeah, often I, joke, I often joke to my little son that if I eat that, an apple tree is going to grow out of my mouth. We often have a laugh about that. It'd be really cool if that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. Uh, so we would be fully, we would come full circle. But anyway, so this so this plant is growing and the and the fruit matures, right? And the microbiome, these microbes, they're responsible for that process taking place. But you know, ultimately. Uh, it could be whatever it may be, maybe it's sour, maybe it's cabbage. You know, we were walking along one day and we harvest this cabbage, we bring it home. Well, the cabbage has a microbiome. And like you could take that cabbage and you could put it under water with some salty water and you could create sauerkraut and you don't need to add any microbes. The microbes are already there, right? Or you could consume that apple or that cabbage and you could actually transfer some of those microbes into your body. The point is this, there are no barriers. It's all continuous. It's just not to be metaphysical, but it's just a question of, are we zooming in? Because if you zoom in, like you pull out a microscope and you zoom in, you see these little small microorganisms and they're there. And they're a part of our skin, in our mouth, our eyeball, inside our colon. That's where they're concentrated, but they're also on the apple. You know, they're also on the cabbage. And if you zoom out, you see us. And then if you zoom out even further, well, it's like being up in an airplane and you look down and you see, you know, land mass or you see, maybe you see buildings, but you don't see humans, but we're there. And mm. so you know, I kind of feel like this is all just a continuous thing and um, we're a part of it and we don't, we're not autonomous creatures. We are an integrated part of our environment. That's, yeah. that's amazing. That's so, that's so profound. Like it really is that idea that, you know, where. We're self-determining humans that are like, we are obviously, we are in charge. We are autonomous creatures. We like but to realistically, believe. realistically, it's a completely symbiotic relationship between the microbiome and the, the greater macrobiome and ourselves. Like we are not individual creatures. We are independent individual creatures, but there's so much more at play than beyond our own self-will and individualism. We're gone well, very philosophical here now. But it's, yeah, but, it's beautiful. But it's true, though. But it's true, though, because, you know, we, we now have um, research. This is emerging research. And don't get me wrong. I, I, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg here. There's going to be a lot more to come. So stay tuned. But the tip of the iceberg is telling us that our microbes affect our cravings, our taste buds, the way that you smell. And whether or not you're attracted to other people. Our pheromones. Right. So it's so like literally like our pheromones, like someone walks into the room and you just find yourself attracted. And often that can be coming from obviously it comes from a chemical process, but it's down to that interplay of bacteria in this bacteria ridden world that we live in. Yeah. I've been with my wife for 10 years, so it's been a while. But when I was back, <laughs> in, the day, back in the day when I was single. You know, and you would go on a date. Um, it's. I think we've all been there. I, 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 I put this out to the audience listening at home because I think anyone who's an adult, you've, you've been there. Where you are on a date, 
And like everything on paper seems great. The person seems great, but there's just something that's off. And sometimes it's just like, you're just not attracted to their smell. That's a bizarre thing. Do you tell that person? Like, I don't like the way that you smell. No, you're not going to say that. But there is something about this. And, and a lot of this, you know, you guys, um, when we kiss, there's actually evidence to suggest that we share microbes. Uh, about 100 million microbes. And why would that be? Why do we even kiss in the first place, right? This is, these are philosophical questions. Why do humans kiss? And I think that the answer legitimately, like this is not being sensational, is that the microbes compel us to do this. And we are sharing to see if this is a fit. So it's a uh, microbial dance. It's a microbial dance. And we're exploring, we're exploring the, the possibility of sharing microbiome, uh, our microbes together to see where that takes us. Maybe it's a fit and maybe it's not, you know, an, no another way. That's amazing. Even, even something like, um, again, this is leading this far out quest, uh, uh, conversation, even a little bit further out there. Like, you know, the way we, we tend to live, at least in modern day society, like back in Greek time, the idea of genius was something outside of, you got struck by genius and you were simply the conduit of the genius. Whereas nowadays someone is a genius. You know, Will, you're a genius. Congratulations. It's all your work. You are brilliant. Whereas in Greek times, it was something outside of ourselves. And I wonder, so much of society is caught up with the individual and the ego and the I and what I've achieved and I am brilliant. But it seems that part of this is an illusion that a huge amount of what happens in our day-to-day -day life is driven by bacteria. And although we tend to possibly. believe, or possibly, um, and I just wonder, is there any scientific evidence to kind of back this up that we're not necessarily as self-determining as it might appear? Um, well, I, I mean, I do think that it's problematic that we as a society are so focused on ourselves, because I think when we, when, if we're, if we're making the claim that with 8 billion people on this planet, uh, where, you know, in 1800, there were 1 billion people. And in 1900, there were 2 billion people. And right now, here we are, and it's 122 years later, and we are at 8 billion people, and we're going to be at 11 billion in the next 30 years. You know, if we're so egotistical that all we care about is whether I feel good and what is right for me or good for me, then we lose sight of this bigger picture, which is how our individual choices ultimately affect the, the entire planet and the entire system. And this is how we get into a situation where humans can like, you know, for example, lead to species extinctions, which is happening. Um, and also how we get ourselves into trouble with things like global food supply or global warming. And ultimately, you have to actually take a moment to like, say things like, what will the world like, what, what will the world be like for my grand grandkids? Right? Because like this is, to me, where the ego needs to get in check. Because ultimately, you may not be around, but your grandkids will be. And they don't deserve what we're giving to them. So, but yeah, that's the way that I feel about it, to be honest with you. Yeah, wow. I totally agree. Yeah. Jeez, that was good. That was profound. Uh, oh, need a moment to recover after that. Uh, but the, but there, there was a lovely expression. I know uh, like our mutual friend, Dr. Alan Desmond, he had a lovely line where he says like, if you don't like, like bacteria, you're living on the wrong planet, you know, because it's such a bacteria, like there's bacteria everywhere across the planet. Yet like 
you know, there is this illusion of sterility that I'm going to spray something on the tablecloth and I'm clean and <laughs> I'll just go clean myself and all this type of things. And there is this idea of cleanliness, yet... um. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. And then, then how, how do you, can I just ask a question relating to that? How do you draw the line between this illusion of sterility on this planet that illusion is of cleanliness. bacteria? And where where does, where are there lines in this? Because it seems like there's bacteria everywhere and the bacteria are vital for every functioning in terms of us and also in so much of the environment that we and, exist. And this, and this comes back to, I'm sure you know, Dr. Robin Shutkan, and she, she wrote that book, um, live dirty, eat clean, talking about kind of rewilding herself and getting more comfortable with being less hygienic to encourage more bacterial biodiversity. And I wonder where your stance is in terms of that as a, as a gastroenterologist, like in terms of hygiene and steri- like as in, you know, cleanliness and, you know, microbial biodiversity. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, you have to go back to the origins of how we got to where we are today. So let's go back to uh, the... Uh, turn of the 20th century, like it's it's like roughly 1900, okay? And you have to understand that the top causes of death were all infections. It was not heart disease or cancer. It was like, you know, pneumonia and influenza and tuberculosis. Like this is what was killing people. And it stayed that way up and through World War II And then the greatest discovery in the history of medicine happened, which was penicillin. Penicillin instantly added years to our lives. So the problem is that we're coming from a context where we view microbes and bacteria as being implicitly bad. And that's because the only time that we're coming into contact with these microbes that we're aware of, leading up even through, because you guys are, I believe, very similar in age to me, leading all the way up through our childhood and our life. You know, the idea is bacteria are bad. Bacteria can only hurt you. They can cause harm. And it's not until very, very recently that we developed the techniques and the technology for us to actually understand this entire world of microbes where most of them are really, really good. So how do we navigate this where we manage risk where risk exists, because there are places where risk exists. But we don't um, have a hyperbolic knee jerk response where all microbes are bad, because that's simply not true. And I think that the answer comes to just sensibility. So when we're pulling out industrial chemicals that did not exist until the last 30 years, you know, when we're pulling out Purell, and we're slathering it on our hands, I think that's where we're, we're crossing the line, and we've taken it too far. But on the flip side, like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that if I were your doctor, you would want me to wash my hands. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with picking up some soap and washing your hands at the appropriate time. Um, so that, that to me is where I think we draw the line. Now, when it comes to rewilding, this is not just about bodily hygiene. I mean, I do think that there, there are arguments to be made for like us going too far in terms of the products that we use in the shower, for example or the products that we use to clean our home. My wife and I, we use vinegar to clean our house. That's what we use. We're not using chemical sprays. Um, But the other part that you have to bear in mind is that outside of where you and I are right now, so right now we are indoors. And we are surrounded by lifeless, uh, inanimate objects. And they don't have a microbiome. 
there may be scant microbes that exist, you know, on my books or on my table or on my furniture. There may be scant microbes that exist there, but that's not a microbiome because they're not alive. But out there, there's life. You know, there's, there's trees and plants and soil and animals and birds, bugs. And all of that, all of that includes microbes. And so when you step outdoors, you are stepping into this new environment where it's almost like, uh, I don't know if y'all watched this movie when you were kids, but like The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy steps out of black and white and into color. <laughs> and it's a profound moment in the movie. And that's kind of what is happening in our world, which is that here we are, and most of us, unfortunately, are spending most of our time indoors in sterile or borderline sterile spaces. And not no longer are we spending enough time outdoors where we, as humans evolved, where we actually are in contact with these microbes everywhere we go. You walk by a tree. You don't have to hug the tree. You could, but you don't have to hug the tree. But that, mic that tree has a microbiome, and you are coming into contact with those microbes by simply walking around it. I think that's a perfect um, segue into start talking about uh, microbiome exposure to bacteria, biodiversity and mental health, because often, you know, right now we're going through uh, society is wonderful and that it's finally starting to embrace, you know, that we all mental health is so vitally important and it's so good to talk about it in this. And I wonder if we could talk or if you could talk about the importance of exposure to greater bacteria, biodiversity, getting out in nature, connecting to it, eating food foods that encourage more prebiotics and more diversity of our microbiome and how this affects our mental health. It's really a story of the brain-gut connection, which we knew very little about up until very recently. But where we are today is that it's impossible to separate the brain from the gut. They're best friends, and they are intertwined and communicating with each other literally right now as we sit in here and have this conversation. Your brain is talking to your gut. Your gut is talking to your brain. Let's go back to something we talked about very early on in the show, which is stress and the effect of stress on your gut. Let me explain what actually is happening there, because I want to unpack this as we move into talking about brain health and mental health. So when, we, when you uh, experience stress, what ultimately ends up happening is this is on a physiologic basis. I'm going to get nerdy here. I hope you guys don't mind. Love it. Okay, perfect. So your, your brain, specifically your pituitary gland, will release a hormone called corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH. This CRH, we, we actually have it for a reason. It's not meant to harm us. You know, there are things that could exist where CRH becomes advantageous for us. But the problem is that with anything, when you push the body into a moment of being like provocative or responsive, there's going to be some sort of price that you have to pay. And this CRH, if you were to track what happens with it, it initiates the stress response in your body. And if you follow that waterfall, that sort of cascade of stress response all the way down to the bottom, what you discover is that it's actually causing harm or injury to your microbiome. This is the way that your brain can affect your gut. This is why stress can affect your gut. This is why when you go up for public speaking, you know, as my example of like an acute stress, People could get the, get the butterflies or get queasy or get uh, discomfort or diarrhea. All right. But like a quick example, I had a patient recently with ulcerative colitis and I had her on a plant-based diet 
And I was doing everything I could to try to fix her. I also had her on the right medications. She was not getting better, no matter what I did, even on a high fiber diet. Why? Because there are people who do everything right. They eat a high fiber diet the way that, you know, we all collectively recommend, or they meditate and they sleep and they exercise, they're still not better. And this exemplifies, this person exemplifies what's happening. She hated her job. Her boss would publicly embarrass her, demean her at meetings, and shred her confidence to pieces. And she did not get better until she quit her job, which was not easy for her. But when she quit her job, when she quit her job, she instantly went into remission. And she was like a different person. So stress can have that kind of impact. Okay, so if stress negatively affects the gut, let's talk about how the gut affects the brain and affects our mood. Your gut has a number of different ways to send signals to your brain. It's like kind of like, look, if I want to get in touch with you guys, I could DM you through Instagram, I could send you a text message, I could send you an email, or I could create a fire in my backyard and try to send some smoke signals, but they probably are not getting the gray stones. But still, <laughs> the, the, the point is that there's multiple different means of communication, and they're all sort of unique in their own way. Your gut communicates to your brain through the vagus nerve through molecules that the gut will produce. That includes things like short chain fatty acids that come from fiber that are anti-inflammatory and will actually travel all the way up to your brain. And your gut produces neurotransmitters. So 90% of the serotonin in our body, serotonin, by the way, is the happy hormone. Hmm. 90% of it is produced in our gut. 10% is produced in the brain. But the stuff in your, the, the, the gut, even there, like I had, because I used to say that all the time, Dr. Allen, I, I read that and then I used to say it all the time. But then I was, he kind of said to me that I don't know if it actually makes it up to your brain. The serotonin that's produced in your gut is actually makes it to your brain. Maybe you're going to say yeah. that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Uh, so, so yeah, that is actually completely true, which is that the serotonin that exists within the gut is not intended to be a mood serotonin. The serotonin that exists in the gut is involved in motility how your gut moves and motility is actually critical to rhythm and rhythm is critical to our body functioning the way that it's supposed to think about your heart. Um, your gut is the same way. Well, there are actually serotonin precursors. So that are also produced by these gut microbes. An example of one is 5-HT and these serotonin precursors. So the 90% of serotonin that may not actually cross the blood brain barrier but 5-HT, which is also produced by the gut microbes, it does. And so there are ways in which your gut microbes are actually producing neurotransmitters that are ultimately getting up there. I'm not saying that they're the dominant factor in terms of serotonin in your brain, but I am saying that this is a, a, a form of communication that exists between your gut and your brain. Um, so, you know, the point though, is that there's so many different ways. So... If this is true, if your gut can affect your brain, can affect your mood, then we should see this manifest through interventions, like for example, diet. And the answer is we do. So they actually, there's um, someone in Australia, her name is Professor Felice Jacka. She's at the Food and Mood Center. And she did a study that they called the SMILES trial. Which I think is oh, great. yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's brilliant. And 
in the smiles trial, the intervention was a plant predominant Mediterranean diet. And they took a group of people that had mild to moderate depression, not severe depression, mild to moderate depression. It worked. They had significant clinical improvement in terms of their mood by eating more plants through a plant predominant Mediterranean diet. Further evidence exists. So this, that was a few years ago, by the way. Further evidence now exists more recently in the gut microbiome where they have looked at the, like, what is going on with the gut microbiome of people that have clinical depression. And they have discovered that those who are depressed have a reduction in diversity within their gut microbiome, less biodiversity within the gut microbes. And they have a reduction in terms of specifically the short chain fatty acid producing microbes. And this is important because the short chain fatty acids come from fiber. And how do we get more of the short chain fatty acid producing microbes? You consume plants, which is exactly what they were doing in the SMILES trial. And they achieved the effect that we're looking for. So it all starts to come full circle. You see that this picture, the, the picture that we paint, it all becomes more clear with more evidence coming out. Have they ever tried, so this has gone, I'm blown away by all this. Have they ever tried like fecal transplants from someone, for example, like someone with a healthy gut microbiome into someone who's clinically depressed and tried that? I know there's, I know there's been lots of mice where they've done experiments with mice and taken mice, mice with healthy microbiome, skinny ones and put them into fat. They've tried all sorts of things, but in humans, has there been anything like this? It's been clinically trialed or to get humans to actually do the fecal transplants might be difficult. I don't know. So it's a little bit hard for me to keep track of every, of all the fecal transplant studies, because there are like literally thousands of them that are taking place right now. Um, there's been an explosion. Here's where we are on fecal transplants. So fecal transplant, if you went back 10 years ago, I had people that I would have to send to surgery to have their colon removed because they had an infection called Clostridium difficile infection. And um, antibiotics were not really working. That's why many people had to have surgery to get their colon removed. Well, we discovered this was like a crazy moment in medicine. Like, hold on, our antibiotics don't work, but you could take someone else's poop and put it into that person with a rip-roaring, life-threatening infection and in the next 48 hours, they will be better. That was completely wow. insane. All right. And we were all very skeptical, like, because, you know, honestly, if you went back 10 years ago, poop was the least valuable, least respected thing that I believe exists on the planet. It doesn't get worse than that. <laughs> and um, it's so fascinating because we're, we just, I think it was the stigma of it. Like, how could you possibly put someone else's poop into another person? But really what you're doing there is you're quite simply restoring a balanced microbiome. And when you restore a balanced microbiome, that infection that does not respond to antibiotics, it goes away. Yeah, poo is like mostly bacteria, isn't it? Like it's 95% plus bacteria. It's like a collection of brown bacteria and fiber. Well, if you were to weigh it, yeah, if you were to weigh it, your, your poo is actually a reflection of your gut microbiome, which is why I'm a big believer that we should be actually be looking at what at what comes out, we should be looking at our bowel movements because it's a window into your gut health. 
And if you were to weigh a bowel movement and look, most people would expect it's like the excrement of your food, right? It's like whatever your food waste is. And that's not actually true. 60% of the weight of our bowel movement actually comes from microbes. So it is a reflection of your microbiome. So yeah, so when you transfer someone's poo into another person, you are transferring microbes and those microbes, when they're in harmony, when they're in balance, which they should be when a person is healthy, they can restore order. And it's almost like taking a city that is, you know, having excessive crime and restoring order with like an appropriate police department and having, you know, community like neighborhood watch and all of these different things that you can do. Then ultimately it's like, okay, you get the whole thing cooled off real fast. And so, so that's where really most of the science for fecal transplant exists. Now, the problem with fecal transplant is that if a person does not change their diet, then their microbiome is ultimately just going to go back to whatever it was within a short period of time. And so it's like a temporary intervention, but it doesn't stick or stay unless you make the diet and lifestyle changes that are necessary to allow it to stick and to stay. And so if you were to take a person who's clinically depressed, there's a level of complexity to that where you can't just quite simply change their microbiome on a temporary basis and fix it like you can with this infection. But instead, you would need something that's more sustained in order to work. And so in theory, I, I, I have not seen any evidence to this yet. In theory, if you did a fecal transplant and it coincided with simultaneous dietary intervention where you change their diet to like similar to the smiles trial a plant-based diet if you did that that to me could potentially be a very powerful and natural tool applied to um improving mood for people that have these issues all the all this type of stuff is super empowering like you hear this and it's like wow we can do it we can, can with simple mechanisms we can i shouldn't say simple but within mechanisms that are within our grasp we can really transform our health so it's really and, and with the same type of thing so I, I we need we need to move into food after this so this is my last one we're right in the weeds again is uh so this is determining weight like weight is such an issue and there's some people trying so many different strategies to lose weight and to get thinner and i've heard you talk about mice and you say okay the studies with mice where they take skinny mice and obese mice and they take take a fecal transplant from the skinny mice they put it into the fat the overweight mice and the overweight mice become skinny and then they've also, I've heard you kind of describe it in a different way where you, you know, um, I can't remember, something to that degree. But I'm wondering that with humans, so say, for example, there's an obese um, ma man or woman, whichever it is, and we take the a fecal transplant from a skinny, like a, a healthy weight person that's got a very diversity microbiome. We give it to someone who's overweight and then we put them on a plant-based diet. Is that likely to sustain in terms of weight loss? Well, it's a good question. I haven't, I haven't seen any clear evidence using uh, fecal transplant to say that we that that yet that there's an advantage to doing the fecal transplant, but we do have clear evidence in terms of a plant based diet. And the what's exciting about that, I mean, we there, there are a myriad of studies to support that eating more plants, consuming more fiber, or moving towards a plant based diet is associated with uh, improved metabolism with better blood sugar control, lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, and weight loss. That, I mean, that to me is sort of the metabolic package that you get from eating more plants. And um, so I, 
you know, whether or not the fecal transplant becomes a necessary step for people who are obese, there may actually be some people that that is true. There are, I mean, let's just keep it real. There are some people who they try to go on a plant-based diet and it just is not clicking for whatever reason. I want to know what's happening there. And I think this is where the future of personalized nutrition comes in. You guys, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I'm involved with a UK-based company called Zoe. And in work with um, Tim Spector and King's College London, and we're, we're in the process of developing personalized nutrition recommendations where we have a population of people, more than 20,000 now, who have given us their microbiome, their blood uh, sugar response, their blood lipid response, and they enter into an app what they're eating. And when you take this number of people, you know, if we had 100 people, it would be worthless. But when you have more than 20,000 people and climbing very, very quickly right now, if you take that number of people, you put it into a supercomputer, the supercomputer runs complex machine learning algorithms. And we stop being about average results, or like, you know, in general, what are the recommended things we stop being about in general, and we start saying, yo, Steve, Dave, I found something in your unique microbiome. It's a trend that we're seeing in other people that have the same pattern as you. This is the ideal food for you to be eating. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Uh, I've been working with the company for a few years now. Tim Spector is one of the founders of the company. We don't sit down and say, what do we think are the healthy foods? We don't do that. We don't need to do that. Let the computer decide. Let the, let the algorithms tell us what are the healthiest foods for people to be eating. And I can't help but feel really good about the fact that when the data comes out, right, and I haven't touched it or changed it in any way, when the data comes out, the answer is very clear. People need more plants. They need more fiber. And so universally, you know, like, do we need to all do Zoe in order to know what to eat? Not necessarily, but I do think that there's like value to refining your understanding of your own biology. I think there's clear value there. But what I do see is that no matter what, um, we all need to be eating more plants. And this is why the evidence is so strong in terms of plant, plant predominant diets. And is, is this like, is that the, you know, the way if you were to, have one single thing which you'd recommend to people if they were going to make one shift would like, I know, um, like we've obviously been plant pushers for 20 years now or so. And like plants has been our message for 20 years. And if you were, if you like, as a, with all your medical experience, dealing with patients, writing incredible books, you know, being an incredible advocate for gastroenterological health, um, like boiling it down to one thing, like I know Dr. Allen always talks about like his, his things are food, 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 like plant, plants, plants. Are you, have you kind of come to the similar kind of conclusion or what are your thoughts? I know it's, it's a complex issue, but like, you know, the way sometimes there's, there's a big nail and you can, there's the big levers. Okay. These are complex issues, but what's really exciting is that the choices or the solutions actually are not that complex. We can make them super simple. And they can apply to all of them, all of us. And that includes the person who is eating the way that I did 10 years ago, which is a junk food diet. I was about 5% plant-based and I was mostly fast food. 
That was me 10 years ago. We can apply what I'm about to say to that person. We can also apply this, what I'm about to say to you guys, and you've been eating plants for a very long time, and you started your company almost 20 years ago, okay? Which is that the factor that most people are missing and that our food system is not going to give us, we have to be the ones to do this, is to eat a wider variety of plants. This is the key. And it was first discovered in the American Gut Project. The American Gut Project, by the way, was not just Americans. It actually included people from across the globe. There were more than 11,000 people. And um, what they found when they performed their analysis was that the people with the healthiest guts were the people that were eating at least 30 different varieties of plants per week. But we now have additional research that has come out since that I actually saw a paper I'm not kidding you when I say this that came out two days ago <laughs> showing that increased plant diversity in your diet translates into increased diversity in your microbiome we have found similar results in our research in Zoe again the numbers do the talking this is not me telling them what to say we let the numbers do the talking but once again we're finding the same thing that a plant diverse diet is an optimal diet and so, you know, we live in a culture or a world where in the nutrition space, people, you know, we, they have ideas and they'll talk about macros or like they talk about grams of fiber, perhaps if you want to be a fiber pusher. And I'm here to say, stop, stop counting macros, stop counting calories, stop counting grams of fiber, start counting plants, period. And if you eat more varieties of plants, which all of us need to do, and that includes the people like you guys who eat a very healthful diet, but like this still needs to be a point of emphasis. If you eat more varieties of plants, varieties of plants support a variety of different microbes, meaning biodiversity, living inside of you. And when you support a biodiverse microbiome, you are building a strong, resilient microbiome that is up to the challenge and can take a punch to the face and shake it off. And so diversity on the plate translates into diversity in the gut. We all need to start counting our plants. Yeah, it seems like diversity is one of the most important things in nature. In any ecosystem, like the most creative, the most resilient ecosystem is typically the most diverse. And similarly with our microbiome, similarly with soil, soil, the more diverse it is, the more resilient it is, the more fertile it is to grow crops. And we know that because we've just started a farm, a four acre farm. And similarly, in terms of our mental health, typically the more like neurologically speaking, the more we try new activities and we have a diversity of friends and a diversity of activities that we do, typically we're more neurologically resilient. Like we're more engaged, we're learning new things. When we're in the same way with training, I know we did yoga for about 15 years and we were really flexible in many ways, but we we're really stiff and rigid and these like boring yogis. And it was only when we started doing a lot more, I felt more free, more liberated, and I feel more resilient in my body. And it seems like not only, again, going macrobiome, microbiome, it seems like the more we can live lives that are diverse, as well as the more we eat diets that are diverse, the more we're resilient as species. Ooh, good Diversi linkage there. <clears throat> I love it. Diversity is, diversity is a magical word. Diversity is relevant to the microbiome. Diversity is relevant to every single ecosystem that includes the Amazon rainforest, that includes the Great Barrier Reef. Um, Diversity is relevant to your business, right? 
everything that you just mentioned is ways in which diversity is important. Why is this true? The reason why it's true is because you can mature skill sets or acquire new talents or grow through experiences. And when you diversify, like for example, exercise, when you diversify your exercise, look, if you just worked out your chest, you would have a very weird, strange body because you would have very big pectorals, but you would have nothing else, right? That's why you work out different muscle groups. But what if you never did yoga? Well, then you wouldn't be very flexible, right? You would have big muscles, but you would have no flexibility. So the yoga adds a new level to this. So when we diversify our exercise, we're bringing, we're basically maturing new adaptations, new talents, we are growing. And the same is true when we diversify our diet. The food system is compelling us to eat three foods, wheat, corn, and soy. That's what the food system wants us to eat. We have to disrupt the food system. We have to be the ones to not choose monocrops. We have to be the ones to get back to the basics and have a wide variety uh, in our diet. We have to be the ones to make the decision that we're going to buy from the local farmer and to, to neglect, or not neglect, but to choose against the ones that are using the industrial chemicals um, in their farming practices. Ultimately, it comes back to us as individuals making these choices that then allow us to empower not only ourselves, but the world and the environment that we live in. And when the world and environment that we live in becomes more healthy, that ultimately empowers us back. Yeah, and similarly, totally symbiotic. Uh, on the topic of diversity, so our microbiome, one of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet, similarly soil, one handful of soil approximately, has more microbial diversity than human that have, that have ever existed. And I know from soil, just from touching it, even how getting my hands in soil, it kind of almost slows me down. A friend has this expression that, you know, sourdough is the new Prozac and that it's making your own sourdough is very beneficial for your mental health. I reckon having your hands in the soil equally has that really strong grounding aspect. Plugs you in. And recently we were talking to a wonderful um, farmer expert in terms of no-dig farming. And he was talking about, as in recent years, he's trying to incorporate and not necessarily taking a spoon and eating a handful of soil, but he would pick his carrots and instead of scrubbing them clean or peeling them, he'd actually just brush it off the soil and he'd eat it. And similarly, another friend, you know, he, he was reading about just the importance of soil and just the variety where most nutrients come from the soil. He was actually sneaking a tablespoon of soil into his family smoothie every day. And obviously this is the extreme end, but I just wonder could you talk briefly about the importance of our connection to soil and how and food and, and food and, and, and our and overall bacteria practices. diversity and our resilience and our how it affects our overall health? Well, ultimately, soil health translates into human health because we can't be healthy humans if we don't have a healthy food supply. And the health of our food supply is, is directly contingent on having healthy soil in order to grow that food supply. Even if hypothetically you were eating animal products those animal products still are derived from the health of what that animal is eating, which again is derived back from the food supply. So ultimately the foods, I'm sorry, the soil from the soil. So ultimately at the end of the day, the soil, it all comes back to this one place. Like soil translates into healthy food, which translates into healthy humans. Um, but it's quite fascinating that what you mentioned in the very beginning of what you were saying about sticking your hands into the soil and feeling something feeling like there's something there, right? There's actually research to back that up. 
you, you, what you were feeling has actually been scientifically proven. They did a study where they took a group of people. They didn't ask them to do gardening. They just put their hands in soil for two weeks. Not for two weeks. They didn't spend two weeks with their hands in the soil. It was just like for a little bit over two weeks. A little bit, a little bit every day for two weeks. Okay. All right. Uh, A little bit every day for two weeks. And what they discovered is that sticking their hands down into the dirt, these people actually had improvement in their gut microbiome. Now, is it, is it the soil microbes or is it something about the connection between us and our environment that puts us at ease? And when we are at ease, we are actually enhancing the health of our microbiome. It's hard to separate and disentangle those two things. They're both potentially a part of it, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what happened is that they stuck their hands into soil, you know, once a day for two weeks and they improved the health of their microbiome. I love That's that. amazing. Even, I'm enjoying even, this so much. Even we find like there we were before we came down here, we left the cafe and we just called into the farm. A friend just started working on the farm and we called in. We said, we're only staying 10 minutes. Want to get down. Want to get, do some prep for, um, for Will. Want to be on top of my game. And we arrived and suddenly there's just this energy of just stillness, groundedness. And it's like time just, you could spend all day there just tinkering around because there's just such a feeling of harmony of just, there's just this rhythm, this gentle serenity, almost this maternal embrace from Which the Which is earth. the opposite of the inter, you know, the way the caffeine fueled, adrenaline pumping, modern day productive cities. society. It was just this different feeling. By spending time, I think, in nature, a hand in the soil, it just really counted. Was that just a comment or do you That was just, okay, okay. A okay. little romantic not- comment. Well, it's not, it's not a coincidence. Like what, what, what you're feeling is you're feeling yourself as an authentic human. This is the way that you were supposed to feel. This is the way that we evolved over more than 3 million years is, is to be in that specific environment that you just described. It's inauthentic. It's unnatural what we have done. We have normalized unnatural. And we have created this, it's a, it's a societal construct to say that you need to be in the city pumping caffeine and Red Bull all day while you run from job to job and you don't take even a minute to eat, right? That's a societal construct. It's unnatural. We're not supposed to be doing that. And look at how unhealthy we are, right? Look at how unhealthy we are. Look at how miserable we are. Look at the, look at the prevalence of mood disorders that exists. And take a step back and look at the work of Dan Newtoner in the Blue Zones. And Dan you know, basically identifies these five places across the globe. I think most people know the blue zones, but just in case, these five places from across the globe where people are being living to be 100 years old at a rate that's off the charts, but it's not just an age thing. They're not just living to a later age. They're healthier. They're healthier at a later age. How are they living? There's a pattern to all five places. By the way, for those that haven't heard, this includes Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, uh, Ikaria, Greece, uh, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and then finally, <laughs> shockingly, a part of the United States, which is Loma Linda, California, which is where the Seventh-day Adventists live. It's really a Seventh-day Adventist population. And so the, these people, they're so healthy. What, what are they doing? Well, what they're doing is that they're eating real food and they're spending time at the table with other humans and they're making eye contact and they're having conversations. And then they go for a walk after they eat and they laugh and they meet up with their buddies and maybe they have a glass of wine. And you know, this is a very different lifestyle than go, 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 stop. Like don't, 
no, no, you don't have time to do that. You have to keep going. You have to keep going. No, no, you don't have time for your kids. Keep going, keep going, keep pushing. We're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it myself. And the, the problem is that it's a very unnatural lifestyle and it has separated us from what is an authentic human experience, which is to be connected to your environment, to be connected to nature, where we feel like the most at ease ourselves, which is exactly what you were describing. Yeah, wow. love that. Love Dan and love yeah. his work. Think, okay, so. one thing I'd love to talk about, which is going on a different tangent again, is so nowadays you hear lots about intuition and you hear lots about, you know, people talking about, you know, you read book, you read spiritual books and like, you know, books about surrendering to now and being here now and like getting out of your head and connecting more to your gut and more your feelings and intuition and whatnot. And I wondered, like, your gut is considered your second brain. You know, it's got a huge amount of nerve endings there. Everyone talks about your gut instinct and whatnot. And I wondered, like, for you, who's someone who's so, you know, you're such a qualified person in terms of like studies and you've got such a powerful mind, really, really smart. And I wondered, like, what are your thoughts in terms of intuition and this aspect of things? Well, I, 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 first of all, come into this entire conversation with humility. So um, I don't think we know everything. And to pretend that we know everything would be very silly <laughs> and, and egotistical. And I think that we also need to look at alternative approaches to the same sort of challenges that we're trying to tackle and have respect for those alternative approaches. What I'm really referring to right now is like, for example, Ayurvedic medicine or traditional Chinese medicine, where these approaches, they, they don't, like they didn't use the modern ideas of science, like randomized controlled trials or epidemiology. That's not what they were doing, but they were refining their craft over 5,000 years. And during that period of time, they were making observations. And those observations ultimately are science. And maybe we use different words to describe things, but we're talking about the same thing. It's not a coincidence that modern science is time after time after time, finding that many of these ideas that exist, for example, in Ayurveda or in traditional Chinese medicine, they're actually on point. They're actually accurate. They were catching on to the right thing because they were observing this. This It's just that they weren't doing like randomized controlled trials. So I think that's part of it. You know, the one thing that I will say about intuition is that there are places where it can actually be disruptive and harmful. So we have to be at least a little bit cautious about it. It's not to stand against it. It's just to say that not everything that makes us feel good is actually good for us. <laughs> yeah, very true. I intuitively think I need a donut today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mm, You exactly. probably are. I wouldn't be following that kind of intuition, but like, I don't know. I'm just curious about that aspect of, well, you know, particularly from a spirituality point of view. Yeah, no, I think I think from a spirituality perspective, I, you know, I, I think that we as humans are clearly so much more than just um, uh, rational, rational beings. I think that there's a lot more to us than just that. I read a very interesting book recently um, called Under the Summer Moon, and it was about the period of time where the West in the United States was being settled for the first time. And, you know, of course, there were uh, Native Americans who lived in these places. Like, so it's not that there weren't humans there. Obviously, there were Native Americans there for thousands of years. But the basically, the, you know, uh, American citizens were starting to move west into these places. And there was someone who she was abducted in Texas when she was seven years old. And 
entered into the Comanche Indian tribe. And she was allowed to actually grow to be a part of it. And she became uh, the wife of the chief. And they knew that she was missing. They were looking for her for 30 years. And ultimately, there was a raid on the Indian tribe. Now, by the way, this was war that went back and forth. So both sides were doing things that none of us would say were good. Um, It was war. But nonetheless, there was a raid on the Indian tribe. And they found her. And they brought her back to society. And they thought that they were saving her, saving her. And she became clinically depressed. Wow. And she, she constantly tried to escape to go back. And she, um, she actually died at a very young age because of health-related issues and, frankly, the fact that she never reintegrated her in, into society or ever became happy again. And so how do you interpret this? Because you say, like, we're saving you. We're bringing you back to civilization. You have a home. You have a bed, right? You were sleeping like as a nomad in a teepee on the plains. And the thing is that in her world that she that she lived prior to this moment where she was brought back to civilization, uh, and in her world that she lived, her life was magical. Spirits were everywhere. They would dance through the night around a fire. Um, you know, the rock, the stream, the grass, there was a spiritual element to all of it. When they made decisions, it was based upon intuition that came from the chief. Uh, maybe the chief would meditate. And that's how the tribe made decisions. And so it's just kind of fascinating. This It's almost an experimental thing to, to observe this person who experienced both sides of this life. And that she um, actually was happier outside of the civilization that was created by, you know, what we currently live in. I love that. It's, That's it's, amazing. It's, it's like perfect reminder for the set, the living more in harmony with nature as, as much as we possibly And possibly can. some of the way that we live nowadays may not be fulfilling every aspect of it. I think most definitely. Yes, definitely. Can, I'm I, being very I, I know we're coming very, we're getting close in time. And just, can I ask one final question, Will? No. Ah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> <Go on. laughs> okay. Well, this is going to be a big one, though. Uh, okay. On yeah. the topic of food sensitivities, when we were growing up 20, 30, yeah, almost 30, yeah. 40 30, years ago. 40 years ago. Um, you're not 30. No, you're 40. When I went to school, when I went to school, very few people had allergies. They really weren't prevalent. Even when we opened the cafe 18 years ago, there really wasn't. I, like, very... I never remember anyone in school having a kiwi or a strawberry allergy or, or a sesame seed allergy. Like, I, I don't anything. remember ever. And even when we opened the cafe first, allergies didn't really exist. Now there's whatever, nine or 10 allergens that you got to kind of, you know, document for every food group. And I just wonder with, as we have shrunk our diversity of diet, as we have shrunk our diversity of activities, as we've become more specialized, more homogenized, more modern day productive humans that tend to struggle with dealing with stress, has this has a massive impact on our sensitivity to certain foods? Yeah. So I think, let me, let, let me unpack this a little bit. I hope you guys don't mind. Do we have a few minutes? Is this okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. totally, totally. Where, 
Yeah. Okay. Right, no I'm, rush. I'm good on time. I'm good on time too. And I'm sorry for good. rejecting this question. It's a good question. <laughs> no, no, no. We, we only have to go collect vegetables from the farm and I'm going to go stick my hands in the soil. I'm going to get plugged in. <laughs> so what you're saying is that I'm making you less healthy in terms of your gut microbiome by the minute, but you will recover by going outside when we're yes! done. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Sounds good. So um, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, let's start off because we have to separate food allergies from food intolerances. Yes. They're not the same thing. And many people sometimes will use these ideas or expressions interchangeably. So it's important that we make this distinction because they're actually quite different. Food allergies, an allergy, allergy, the word, it really means an, a response of your immune system to something that's foreign to your body. So like seasonal allergies, you know, you get exposed to pollen and you get a runny nose. Well, it's the pollen that's foreign to your body that's activating your immune system that causes the runny nose. When it comes to food allergies, the, the allergen, the thing that's activating your immune system is the food. And there are these specific foods that you were alluding to that we need to, like for you guys having a food business, you have to document which of these foods exist. So um, the classic foods that cause food allergies, these are the classics, are fish and shellfish, dairy, eggs, wheat, corn, soy, peanuts, and tree nuts. All right, so these are the classics. And if you take a step back for a moment, so I'm going to explain to you why we have a lot more food allergies, but why these foods? Why these ones? That's the question. Well, if you take a step back, again, think about this. Dairy, eggs, wheat, corn, soy, peanuts. What are the principal Over ingredients? Ultra-processed foods. What are the principal ingredients in our ultra-processed foods? This, this is them. And when we create ultra-processed foods, I'm not talking about processed foods. When you guys create like a high-quality, healthy foods that happen to be on the shelf in your market, that's a processed food. That's not an ultra-processed food. An ultra-processed food is when we have to bring in food chemists and they start combining weird ingredients that I, as a chemistry major in college, I don't even know what you're talking about, right? That's what an ultra-processed food is. And when they do this, they're creating something that's entirely unnatural. It started off with natural ingredients. It started off with eggs and, and dairy and peanuts and wheat, corn, and soy. That's where it began. But the end product is something very different that is some derivative of those ingredients plus adding in all kinds of chemicals that may confuse and disrupt your microbiome. It's not a coincidence that these are the foods. We have created a confused microbiome and a confused microbiome translates into a confused immune system. And the reason why is because 70% of your immune system exists literally right there, separated by a line called the epithelial, the epithelial layer. This single layer of cells is so thin that the naked eye, I could be holding it right now and you wouldn't even know because the naked eye can't perceive it. And so they're in that close proximity. And this is why if you look at people that have allergic diseases, there's disruption of the microbiome. If you look at people that have autoimmune diseases, there is disruption of the microbiome. If you ask the question, why do certain people have severe manifestations of COVID-19 while others do not, there's disruption of the microbiome. Effectively, what I'm saying is that when we're involving the immune system, the microbiome is a part of this equation every single time. And when we talk about the rise in prevalence of food allergies, 
we're talking about the fact that the microbiome of 2022 among humans is less healthy than the microbiome of 1980. That's the issue. By the way, 1980 is the year that I was born. I don't know about you guys. I feel like you're pretty close to that. But like December 79. <laughs> December of 79? Oh, man. <laughs> so we're like one 70s. month. How were the 70s? Tell me. Oh, man, know. they were amazed. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, now food intolerances are not the same because the difference is that with a food allergy, first of all, the, the reaction can be violent. It can be scary. I, as a doctor, fear food allergies because uh, people can, their throat can close off and they can stop breathing. Your lips can get swollen. You can get hives. There's a number of different manifestations. And when it's a food allergy, the most minute exposure could be enough to trigger the biggest event. And this is why you can't have peanuts on the airplane anymore. Because the person who has a peanut allergy, it's not that they're going to grab a bag, bag of peanuts and eat them. That's not the issue. The issue is that if you have peanuts on the airplane, there could be peanut residues that that person comes into contact with. And that could be enough to actually trigger that scary response while the plane is up in the air. So food intolerances are different. By definition, the food intolerance does not involve the immune system. A food intolerance is involving your microbiome mostly or at a minimum, your digestive system, and it's sloppy digestion. That's what's happening. And so with most food intolerances, the manifestation is things like cramping or bloating or gas or discomfort, maybe diarrhea or constipation. These are food intolerances. They're triggered by foods. It's not the immune system. It's not inflammation, because in order for it to be inflammation, it has to involve your immune system. and What's exciting about food intolerances is that for the vast majority of them, they can be overcome. You can think of them very similar to, we were talking about exercise before. You can think of them as having a limitation in terms of exercise. If you have a limitation in terms of exercise, you're out of shape. Well, you can get in shape. There's a process that you go through in order to restore your ability to exercise. And the way it works is you, you do the exercise, but you start really gently and you ease into it and you progressively do bigger challenges. And over time, those bigger challenges translate into more functionality, more ability. And eventually you go from someone who's out of shape into like your rich role and you're running marathons, ultra marathons, right? The gut is no different. The gut is adaptable. The gut is more adaptable than your muscular system is. The gut is adaptable. It can be trained. It can be made stronger. You can add function that doesn't currently exist. But the way to do it is not by avoiding food. The way to do it is by actually consuming that food, much like you would do the exercise. Consuming that food, but doing it initially in a very low amount, meaning gently and then slowly increasing it over time. And much like gently introducing exercise and then slowly increasing it over time, you actually become stronger. Your gut becomes more capable. And next thing you know, you have this supercharged gut that can do the equivalent of running an ultra marathon if you need it to. I love the distinction between um, food intolerances and food allergies. That's something that I never really um, fully comprehended. Also, another thing that came to me when you mentioned kind of the main nine um, allergens, 
most of those are mass produced. And there, and if you spoke earlier about the importance of soil, that ultimately all nutrition comes from the soil, healthy soil means healthy food means more likely to have healthy humans. And a lot of these mass produced foods are produced in monocrops where they're typically paid by fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and they're exposed to a, a, a litany of different um, chemicals. And I wonder, has this probably over time has had a compounding effect that the quality of these foods are significantly less, which has in turn compounded towards um, more proliferation of allergens? Well, I'm not, so, yeah, to, to be clear, I'm not advocating for the complete elimination of these nine foods. Yeah, yeah not, of course. Uh, uh, even a plant-based diet, I yeah, believe yeah. in a plant-based diet, I'm not advocating that people consume eggs and dairy and, and fish and shellfish. But what I am saying is like, for example, soy, let's talk about it. Um, so soy, most of the versions of soy that exist are very unhealthy. And they are turned into weird, you know, Franken burgers or Franken chicken nuggets or things like this. And um, not only are they a part of the ultra processed food, which includes far more than soy, it also includes all these chemicals that are being added in. But when soy is being genetically modified, the what they're doing with the genetic modification is creating soy that is resilient, resistant to herbicides like glyphosate. So now you can spray the soy with the glyphosate, the soy lives, the other weeds and other plants die, everything else around it dies. And the farmer in the short term declares victory because they just got a larger burden of crop. Now, the problem is that it's, I mean, it's short-term gain for that farmer. It's long-term pain because they're destroying the ecosystem. They're destroying the soil. And eventually, there will be a price to pay when this land is capable of producing what it was capable of one day producing earlier. So th that to me is where the problem with soy exists. Let's separate that from edamame, miso, tempeh. And when I buy soy, I always buy organic. And the reason why is because if it is organic, it is by definition not genetically modified. It is by definition not sprayed with glyphosate. That to me is one of the most compelling reasons to buy organic. By the way, even when things uh, are not genetically modified, if they're sprayed with glyphosate, I still want to buy them organic. And part of the reason why is because even if I don't think that I'm consuming, like, you know, for example, uh, there could be an avocado or an orange, and I'm going to peel the layer, like I'm going to peel off the top, the top layer. Even if I'm not consuming the pesticides, herbicides, and whatnot that have been sprayed onto these things, even if I'm not consuming it, it's still destroying our soil. This is a big part of my personal argument in favor of buying organic whenever possible, recognizing that it's not affordable for all, but whenever possible, buying organic and favoring local farms, regenerative farming practices, because ultimately, soil health translates into human health. We need healthy humans. We need healthy humans today. We need healthy humans 100 years from now. Those will be my great-grandchildren. Yeah, I love that. You didn't say tofu in your soy groups there. Did you mean to put oh, it out or did you just forget it? 
Organic, organic tofu. I'm cool with. Right. I'm even cool right. with organic soy milk. I'm cool with organic soy milk. In fact, there's advantages to organic soy milk relative to other types of plant milks because it's very high in protein. And Sarah so here would be glad to hear that. Yeah. Sarah's trained herself to prefer soy milk. She's very good at training herself to like the healthy things. Good work, Sarah. Uh, Phil, or uh, uh, Will, just to, to land this, um, I know, like, w just, just to recap, one of the most important things people can do to have more diversity of microbiome and hence more resilience for their immune system and their overall physiology is to eat more plant-based foods. And the second biggest thing is to focus on diversity. And you've just released, I can see it right behind, a beautiful book called Fiber Field Book. Cookbook. Fiber Cookbook. Field. Cookbook. As well as to build on your book called Fiber, wasn't it? Fiber Field. Fiber Field and Fiber Field Cookbook. I, I've done something profound. I have fixed the spelling on the cover of my book. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little problem, which is that I released the book in 2020 with the spelling F-I-B-E-R-F-U-E-L-E-D. And I have corrected the spelling. It is now, there is a UK version um, with the appropriate spelling on the cover, F-I-B-R-E, but also with the appropriate units of measurement because it's a cookbook and I don't want people to have to make translations in their kitchen in terms of, you know, the different ingredients. So... My book, The Fiber Fields Cookbook, it came out in May and uh, spent three weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And it has, um, it's been great. And, you know, let me just say that if you read, for example, the Amazon reviews, I, I always recommend buying local from your local bookshop. But if you do read the Amazon reviews, what you'll see is person after person, what they say is, this is more than a cookbook. And that's because it's not just a cookbook. Uh, yes, it has 125 recipes and full color photography. And people, that's the first thing that people see. They love the photography and the recipes are delicious. But it also is 11 chapters. Most of those 11 chapters don't include recipes. It's me teaching. Um, it's a focus. Um, we are talking about food allergies versus food intolerances. Like this was actually the very, very start of a conversation about what is in my book. The Fiberfields Cookbook is designed to help people that have food intolerances. It's designed to teach you how to fix those. It gives you protocols. There's actually two food-based protocols built into the book. Um, so I'm very proud of it because I felt like this was a uh, area of need where about one in five people have these food uh, intolerances. About one in five people. It's very common, and there really isn't a solution in the healthcare system for these people. And so I felt like writing this book, and particularly because it was going to be a recipe-oriented book, this was my opportunity as a medical doctor to create a resource that could be used for healing for people. So I'm, I'm excited about it. And by the way, if you don't have food intolerances or you don't have a gut health issue, what I would say to you is this. like If you're super healthy, the most important part of your health, truly, is your gut health. Because it's connected to your digestion, metabolism, immune system, hormones, mood, brain health, energy levels. This is a precious resource. And it's the last thing that we should be neglecting and just assuming that it's going to be okay. So we should actually all have a strategy of how we go about our life that supports and nurtures the healthiest gut microbiome special, uh, uh, the most healthy gut microbiome possible. And that's what really this book is about. It's about a personal journey where whoever you are, you pick up this book, you find something that really connects with you, and then you and then you bring it into your life in a way that 
ultimately you're eating food that you love, you have great joy, but also you are uh, improving your health in that process. I'm going to order your book now. Sounds great. I'll Where get a copy of Raystones, <laughs> baby. I'll get one out to you. <laughs> you're amazing right. will you really are you really are i've enjoyed so, this so much I, I love the ability that you have to go take the esoteric the philosophical the slightly the micro, the weeds, the macro view and the things. micro macro and bring it back to simple practical solutions so big shout out so i have a quick big reveal that i want to make i hope you guys don't mind i have a polish last name i don't know if you guys knew this i have a yeah, polish yeah. last name, i knew it was polish you have you polish, have polish as well. wow Irish. So my mom's family, they were from Ireland and um, their name was McShane. And then when they came to the States, because of the time that they were coming, there was a lot of persecution of Irish people. And because, you know, in the, in the States, we have a history of sort of persecuting whoever it is that is the most recent immigrant. And so it's true. I mean, it's just, it is true. So anyway, uh, they changed their name to Johnson and they settled around New York. And that's, so that's my, that's my clan that I grew up with. And now I have to tell you, I've never actually been to Ireland. When are you going to come? Uh, I've never even been to the UK, to be honest. And so I really, really do want to come. My family has been many times, but they were always traveling when I was like in school or in my training. So I was always too busy, which sucks. You know, your whole family's in Ireland having a great time and you're like working 30 hours a day, you know. Come over so, and we could do some sort of an event. At least you can justify it. You're going you. for work, Will. You're going for work. At least that might get made, make it easier for you to justify. I want to make it happen. I, I, I seriously, I want to make it happen. I want to swim in the Irish Sea. I see all these videos. I want to swim in the Irish Sea and have some fun with you guys. So I hope that we can make that happen at some point. If not 2022, then maybe 2023 sometimes. Yeah, yes. You can come learn Irish with it. Irish is part of your heritage as well. We learn Irish on a Friday at one o'clock over lunch with Brendan. You're going to have to teach me. My, my cousins <laughs> would be so happy and excited if I came back and started doing some things that you guys teach me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Amazing. Uh, this has been great. Really, really appreciated it, Will. Thanks, so much Will. fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I love good health. I really do. I find that fascinating. Like, and we've obviously been deep into good health for a good number of years um, and know loads about it. So it's amazing to hang out with someone that has the wonderful capacity to go macro, down to the micro, go esoteric, go philosophical, and bring it back to practical, um, logical application. Yeah, Will really, really knows his stuff. So uh, I will definitely. Super sound, great. I will definitely buy his cookbook. Reminds me of Dr. Al. Yeah, like just the ability to communicate complex things in very accessible bite size. Yeah, Microbiome and I guess friendly. I guess the big take homes there, which I got certainly as always, is the diversity of plant based foods. Eat as much as you can. Get outside, spend time in nature, move lots more. Diversity is such an important ingredient in every aspect of life, really, whether it be in terms of learning new things, in terms of food, in terms of friendships, in terms of many many things yeah diversity is in having a diverse yeah. friend beautiful word yeah um so yeah thanks Mil, thanks Mel, for your attention and thanks for listening to this i hope you got loads from it if anyone does want to learn more about good health we do have our good health revolution course with dr al he's amazing Who's he's dr. Al? dr alan desmond is a consultant gastroenterologist just an absolute hero and similar to will check out the podcast with him he's amazing they have the exact same philosophy which is all about based around whole plant foods we've had more than twenty-five thousand people through it and uh, it does get incredible results and so. if you go into the internet and you type in the good health revolution the happy pair it will come up yes so thanks a million and uh see you Bye. 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 Bye